Welcome to After the Buzzer. I'm Bob Wallace, Chair of the Sports Law Practice at Thompson Coburn. Thanks for joining us for another episode of our podcast. Our focus again, dive into topics that sports impacts and that impact sports. We want to talk about the hows, the whys, the whens, and the becauses. My guest this week epitomizes our focus with After the Buzzer. He is also someone I sincerely admire and like. Today, we're talking with Mike Tannenbaum, Executive Vice President, Football Operations of the Miami Dolphins. How would I describe Mike? He's smart, he's curious, he's innovative. He's not afraid to be aggressive, whether trading for an impact player, signing a difference maker, or negotiating smart contracts. Mike started as an intern with the New Orleans Saints. After graduating from Tulane Law School, went to work for the Cleveland Browns. He joined Hall of Fame coach Bill Parcells with the New York Jets, rising to become their general manager. While GM of the Jets, they went to the playoffs three times and the AFC Championship game twice. After spending a year at Priority Sports representing coaches, he joined the Dolphins as a consultant and in 2016 was named Executive Vice President. He hired highly regarded Chris Greer as GM and equally highly regarded Adam Gase as head coach. In 2016, the Dolphins went 10-6 and and made the playoffs for the first time in eight years. Injuries, a hurricane, and some off-the-field distractions made 2017 a tough year. But after the retooling, the Dolphins believe 2018 will be much better. In my conversation with Mike, we talked about what it takes to work under some great coaches in the league, how you cope and respond to incredibly high standards they set. From those coaches, Mike learned some great lessons, including how to read the room, an important skill in high-pressured situations like those faced by NFL front offices and how to truly lead by example. Mike is another lawyer slash sports executive, and he tells us what the law gives him in that position, mainly a strong sense of discipline and the ability to think logically about tough situations and argue for the positions you think is right. Before we begin, I must disclose that Mike is very special to me. We served together on the board of the Sports Lawyers Association and been friends for over 20 years. Most importantly, however, he hired my son, Grant, to be a scout with the Dolphins. Consequently, I'll go easy on him. Mike, welcome to After the Buzzer. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. I appreciate that. And uh, first and foremost, I uh, greatly appreciate our, our friendship as well. I have a lot of uh, respect and admiration for you and, and your career. So, Mike, tell us a little bit about your kind of path to, I mean, I briefly touched upon it, but uh, I remember you as a young man coming to the Sports Lawyers Association's meetings back then, and just sort of tell the audience about your path to get to where you are now. Sure, Bob, and uh, you know, just a couple of lessons I would you know, pass along. You know, first of all, I was incredibly lucky. Um, you know, for the first 75 years of pro football, more or less players were with their original club if their club wanted to keep them, and then in 82 and 87, uh, there was litigation, there were strikes, there was uh, a lot of issues with labor, and then finally in 93, there was a comprehensive settlement uh, that took care of literally a decade of fighting between the league and the union, and there was uh, two big things that came out of the 93 CBA. There was cost earnings for the owners in the form of a salary cap, and the players were able to achieve uh, what they were looking for, which was free agency. And literally, I would tell you, um, as you know, Bob, like the population of what front offices look like changed, um, where traditionally it was a lot of former coaches, and um, the league was looking for people with JDs and MBAs, and I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. I was in law school at Tulane. They had a great program for sports law, and I was able to intern for a gentleman named Bill Q. Herrick, who was a GM, and uh, Chad Franklin, the assistant GM, 
and you know did everything, drive people to the airport, uh, research contracts, and then when I graduated in 1995, uh, I sent out all my thoughts about what pro football looked like uh, in the first year of having a salary cap, and uh, I was fortunate that the Cleveland Browns, uh, Mike Lombardi and uh, Bill Belichick, read my thoughts. Uh, I was hired. I spent the 95 season with the Browns, and then, uh, as we know, the Browns became the Ravens, and uh, I went back to the Saints for the 96 season, and then you know my big break was in 97 when Coach Belichick and Coach Parcells left the Patriots after losing the Super Bowl to the Packers and uh, hired me at the Jets. So, you know, one of the lessons I would pass along is, you know, for people looking to get into sports, Bob, would be, you know, where are the barriers to entry low? And again, you know, for me, I felt like I was very fortunate that I happened to be in school at Tulane when, you know, this transformational event happened with the new CBA in 1993, and that kind of changed the population of what front offices look like. So if I was looking to get into sports today for, you know, the young people that may be listening to this, I would say in 2018, you know, what landscape is changing because sometimes a change in landscape creates opportunity. Now, you went to University of Mass undergrad, right? Were you a football player there? I was not. I, I played in high school. I thought about playing at some smaller schools, uh, Division three, uh, most notably, and uh, I, I sat down with my parents, and I wasn't good enough to play at UMass, and uh, that was the best school that I got into, and um, you know, made the decision then that you know, for, for any hope to ever be in pro football, it would have to be the academic way, and, and not, not as a player. And you know, when you're 18 years old, that's when you realize that hey, you know, you're, you're not good enough as an athlete, and it's, it's time to pursue uh, a career. Right. I, I, it's very interesting, Mike, because I was a backup running back at Yale University. And I always say, if you're a backup running back in the Ivy Leagues, you're not going to play at the next level. So like you, I decided that I had to find a way to get involved in something that I really loved. Uh, and so I went to law school, too. When you went to Tulane, did you go there with the hopes that you would be involved in pro sports? Or did you just decide to go be a lawyer and whatever happened, happened? No, it was my dream, and they had a, a very good program uh, for sports law that was initially started by a gentleman named Gary Roberts and continues to this day with uh, a gentleman named Gabe Feldman, and they do a great job working with the Sports Lawyers Association and helping you know, young people try to achieve their dreams. And you know, one of the tenets I try to live my life by is choose a job you love and you never work a day in your life. And um, you know, I've been able to attend UMass, which had a great sports management program, and the people there were very helpful to me. I then transitioned to Tulane Law School, and likewise, there were people there that you know did so much for me early in my career, and um, I'm very thankful and appreciative. And if it wasn't for a lot of kind people who were incredibly generous with their time with me at both UMass and Tulane, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to take the steps that I was able to take. Yeah, you know, and I've observed you, Mike, at, at sports lawyers conferences, and and I always see you spending time with uh, students from Tulane or or UMass or something. And it seems to me that you're very willing to give back the time and sort of open that door like it was for you for others. Yeah, I think that's a responsibility we all have, Bob. And um, you know, we're all very lucky to work in a, in a field like sports, which is, as you know, a very competitive field. So, you know, I, I try to give back uh, in in any way possible. Sometimes it's a quick conversation. Sometimes it may just be an informational interview, but um, you know I think we have an affirmative responsibility to give back, and we have a robust internship program, which is how I started, which is really important to me. And um, you know, again, I think when we've all been able to achieve where we want to go, you know, we have you know the responsibility to help others get to where they want to go as well. So you mentioned earlier that you joined Coach Parcells and Coach Belichick back at the New York Jets. Was it the Jets or the Patriots that you that the Jets? 
That was in 1997 at the New York Jets. So talk about, you know, Coach Parcells, who has a reputation of being uh, pretty tough. A young man coming in, how was it working for Coach Parcells, and what did you learn from him, and how do you take that on to what you're doing now? Yeah, I uh, couldn't have been more appreciative or lucky to work for, you know, a Hall of Fame coach, and, you know, specifically the way we were set up there. Um, he was our head coach and GM, so um, my relationship with him was one of extreme, like, intimacy because I just had to deal with him, you know, quite a bit. And um, the life lessons he taught me will be on a football team um, I'll, I'll take, you know, for the rest of my life. So, um, obviously, I never could have become a GM without, you know, just being around him every day and lessons of evaluating players, building a roster, uh, who to pay, how much to pay, all the things that you talk about running a team, how to manage people, how to give people feedback, how to tell people things they don't want to hear. But um, it was really much more about life with Coach Parcells and, just to be around him every day for four years is something that um, you know I'll cherish forever. And he certainly had standards, and it wasn't always easy, but it was always uh, meaningful. And you know, one minute he could be yelling at you, you know, deservedly, and the next minute he could be praising you. And um, you know, he did a lot of things for me that I'll never be able to thank or repay him enough. But uh, it was a special time in my life. So, if you could share one or two lessons that he imparted to you, what would they be? He had an incredible way with people, so he had this innate ability, Bob, to walk into a room and, and, and look at different people and understand, you know, certain people you'd have to praise and certain people that you, you, you could approach them differently. You know, I think that's what the great coaches do. They have more than one pitch in their bag, and he was certainly that way. And he was uh, very hard to please, but um, he made you better. And he also was uh, demanding, but in a way that was, you know, fair and reasonable. And he, he brought out the best of me and, and a lot of people. And he was dynamic in terms of being able to compartmentalize, like dealing with the media, dealing with the players, dealing with the staff, dealing with the medical department. And he was our CEO. I mean, he ran the whole organization and it was uh, just to be able to sit where I sat uh, to, you know, take lessons from him was incredible. And what was his leadership style and how would you compare it to your leadership style now? Yeah, I would say, you know, his was like, he had a huge presence about him and he was also incredibly smart. So his was uh, very outgoing. He was very sarcastic at times, but he also had a very caring side to him. Like, you know, he could be very nurturing. And in this day and age, Bob, you know, what's hard is we live in an era where, you know, it's all about the sound bite or a quick clip and on social media. But, you know, there was a, a warm and nurturing side to him that no one will ever see. Um, you know, in terms of myself, I, I try to be a lead by example guy. You know, I started off as an intern. I try to work really hard and, and never ask anybody to do something I wouldn't do myself. I think that's really important. Um, I believe in servanthood leadership. You know, if the people that work for you believe that you have their best interests, you're going to get the most out of them. So we're in a tough competitive environment, but, you know, there's a lot of people in our organization that have goals and dreams, and my responsibility is to help them get there as well. Okay. Is there anybody else in, in, in that sort of building Mike Tannenbaum to his style right now that you would point out other than Coach Parcells? Yeah, you know, I'd say there was a lot of people that have shaped me uh, over the course of my career. Um, you know, Coach Belichick, you, know, you talk about preparation. Um, he was unbelievable, you know, how, how he prepared for every meeting uh, every day. You know, and then Terry Bradway was uh, a GM that I worked for for five years, and he had a passion for scouting that, that is, to this day, like, unmatched. And, you know, again, very prepared, very thorough, but very kind. So I think people along the way, different people have uh, impacted me, and, you know, I've been fortunate for that. So uh, you're a lawyer now, and you don't practice much law anymore, do you? I don't. 
now. So your legal training as a football executive, uh, how has it helped you? I think you know, the discipline of the thought process, you know, being organized with your thoughts, being able to substantiate your position, you know, not being whimsical in any approach and having like sound, you know, logic. I think those are all attributes that I picked up while I was in law school. And, you know, I thought the training was rigorous, demanding, tough, but um, really glad and appreciative of going through it. You've mentioned hard work and you've mentioned preparation a number of times. Is there something in particular that when you look at a problem, you know, something comes across Mike Tannenbaum's desk at the Dolphins, how do you go about analyzing those problems? I would say a couple of different ways. You know, you try to look. I think when you're in the front office, you got to be also uh, proactive, Bob. Look around the next corner. So, you know, what's this going to look like in three months, six months, 12 months? And then, you know, I frequently say, Bob, like we're in these positions where the point guard of information. So Chris Greer, Steve Ross, our owner, Adam Gase, our head coach, you know, if we're going to make a transaction, if we do this, guys, here's what we can't do. Now let's put all the information on the board and what's the best decision for us. And, you know, sometimes it's hard. And in this day and age, candidly, you know, you make decisions on players and it's not always easy because you have to win for today and develop for tomorrow. And sometimes you make decisions and it's hard to get your side of the story out. And um, we have to be beholden to, you know, the standard of what's best for us and make those decisions. So, um, you know, we try to be, you know, practical. We, we take a lot of people's input. You know, Chris Greer is an excellent listener. Um, and depending on what the decision is, what area it is, you know, we have Brandon Shore, who's a young lawyer who does a great job uh, negotiating contracts. We have a gentleman named Dennis Locke who runs our analytic department. So we have really an interesting and disparate group of people that have a lot of input into the, the uh, decisions. So, you know, one of the conversations that you always hear on talk radio or in the media is, well, who makes the final decision? And I've always kind of argued that if you have a good organization, there really doesn't have to be that. You're going to reach a consensus decision because you've discussed all this before. And it's not like Mike Tannenbaum says, we're going to do it this way, or Adam Gase says, we're going to do it this way. Uh, How do you deal with that dynamic so that everybody can kind of reach the same decision and when they walk out of the room – they're not going behind somebody's back and say, that was their decision. That was a bad decision. Yeah, I totally agree, Bob. You know, like so much more of that is made in the media. So, you know, we're trying to make these decisions by consensus. And again, I think people would be surprised if they looked under the hood when you make these decisions that when you have all the information, if you're doing your homework, it's pretty easy. Sometimes these decisions you know, will reveal themselves more quickly than others. And I always feel like if there are disagreements, you know, either let's watch more film or let's look at this again or what's the goal here. And, you know, we have goals and objectives and what we want this organization to look like and the types of players. And when we do that, invariably, you know, that decision will bubble to the top and we can get to consensus pretty quick. So talk about your, your a typical Mike Tenenbaum day. I mean, I'm sure that when you wake up in the morning, you may have a to-do list or you say today's cut-down day or today's preparation day, but every day can be different. What is a typical day for uh, the executive vice president of football operations for the Miami Dolphins? Yeah, Bob, as you very well know, being uh, you know, part of running teams for as many years as you did, no, no two days are alike. And, you know, again, for us, I think what we try to do is, like, try to get on the front end of things and, it's really chronologically based. You know, we're at the time of year now where we're going through final cuts, we're signing practice squad players, we're trying to tweak the bottom end of the roster. Actually, during the regular season, it's as routine as it's going to be where Monday and Tuesday you're, you're looking at the roster and you're trying to formalize things. And then, you know, Tuesday at 4 o'clock is payday in the NFL, meaning if you're on the roster at 4 o'clock on Tuesday, you get paid for the week. And then, you know, Wednesday through Friday, you know, the coaches and players are getting ready for the upcoming game. And that's where we're either starting our 
draft preparation, we're doing a lot of work, again, three, four, five months out in terms of which players are going to be free agents you know, come March of 2019. So, again, I think we, we try to take care of the immediacy earlier in the week during the regular season in terms of injuries, roster movements. And then later in the week, our tendency is, hey, let's look big picture. You know, where, where's our roster, you know, a few months down the road? You talked about churning the roster, looking at the better one. I worked with Dick Vermeil for a number of years, and Dick had this sort of loyalty thing. So, you know, he, he kind of told the players, although it wasn't 100% true, that if you made the team, that was who he was going to war with. What's your guys' philosophy? Are you always looking to sort of move guys up, move guys down, sort of the bottom five guys on your team are kind of, they can be replaced? Yeah, no, that's a uh, really good question. And, and we, we talk about that all the time because, Look, you know, you want to show deference to the guys that are here, obviously, because, you know, they've worked hard and they deserve to be here. But with that said, you know, if there's opportunities, we also owe it to the team and the organization to do what's best for us. So, you know, sometimes even in season, you know, we'll make a move. You know, we've done that before. Sometimes, you know, last year we added Jay Culler. That was obviously for an injury. But, you know, when there are opportunities that present themselves, you know, you have to take advantage of those. So, we don't go into the season thinking there's going to be a lot of moves, but invariably a player will get cut that you never thought of, or, you know, a trade will happen. So, um, you know, we're, we're heading into the first week of the season right now, Bob, and you know, we're still making a move or two. So you do want to lean towards loyalty, but you also have to be opportunistic as well. Really good answer, Mike. Thanks for kind of explaining you guys' philosophy on that. When I was doing this way back when, it was the beginning of salary cap era, uh, and I used to always kind of explain it as, well, it's just a pie. We decided how to divide the pie up. Uh, I think, and I haven't done contracts in 15 years, it's a lot more complicated now. How do you manage the salary cap? What are you looking to do? Yeah, I, no, I still think that's a fair assessment, which is, you know, everyone's given you know the same amount of money, and how do you want to divide it up? And I'd say where it's probably become more complex is, you know, there's a few more variables in terms of what counts to the cap and, you know, how you can guarantee money. So, um, you know, there's obviously a couple of benchmarks to look at. You know, what's the cash for the first three years of the deal? Because, you know, traditionally that's the number of years a player will receive a contract. And then, you know, what's the guaranteed money? Because in our system there's guaranteed and non-guaranteed money. So oftentimes there could be two negotiations in terms of, like, total dollars of them, you know, what's guaranteed. And, um you know, again, we try to come up with plans and budgets, and I know this drives the staff crazy because I say so much, but in this day and age, you know, your plan has to be firmly etched in pencil because, you know, things are going to happen, and you think things are going to go one way, and then, you know, for whatever reason, they change. So I think you have to have flexibility in your plans. You have to have guidelines. You have to stand for something and have a good sense of where you want to go, but you also have to be realistic because, you know, life gets in the way, and things change, and players get more in some situations and less in others. And again, I think you just have to be uh, open-minded. You know, in, in pro football, the guaranteed contract has not been that prevalent. You hear the players every year after the NBA finals end, and they start signing new contracts in the NBA. Uh, NFL players always say, why don't we have that? What is the trend on guaranteed contracts in the NFL these days? Yeah, you know, there are some, obviously, most notably Kirk Cousins with uh, Minnesota. And again, like every negotiation is different. I know a lot is made of that in the media, but... You know, our players do very well in the system. There's a lot of trade-offs in our CBA, and I think it's made our sport better and healthier, and, you know, I think both sides are doing well. I mean, obviously, any agreement could always be tweaked um, and at the appropriate time. I'm sure that those issues that are out there that are disagreements between, you know, the league and the union will be addressed. But, you know, by and large, I think everyone has done well with this agreement. And as it relates to guaranteed money, Bob, you know, sometimes players will want 
the chance to make more money and quote unquote risk total dollars for less guarantees. So every situation could be a little bit different. Right. I used to always argue that NFL had a sense of a guaranteed contract because in baseball, now the money's a lot different. They're not giving a signing bonus where you're giving a guy a signing bonus uh, and that's his guaranteed sort of money. So he's getting some money up front. He's not getting it over the length of a contract. It could be a little different, uh, if, if especially in football with the injuries. They may not get all the money that they originally thought they were going to do. You mentioned the uh, labor piece and the CBA. It seems to me, as, as I kind of watch it, that you have more of a labor detente uh, then you have labor peace. There always seems to be a lot of fighting going on between the union and the league. If you had a magic wand, Mike, is there something that you would fix to sort of eliminate that, or do you think that needs to be improved? Look, like I said earlier, like no agreement's perfect, but this CBA has done really well for the whole sport as a whole. And you know, one thing I give our commissioner a lot of credit for that he's constantly talking about is you know making the game safer. I'm the father of a son who plays football, and you know I want him to play in a, in a safe sport and as the leaders, not only in pro football, you know, we have a lot of responsibilities, but one of them is, you know, the colleges, high school, and youth football are going to look at, you know, what we're doing. We're, we're thought leaders. And I think our commissioner's done a great job of talking about player safety, player health. Um, you know, some of the rule changes that have been added are, are all for that to make the game, you know, which is a great game, uh, better and safer. So um, I think there's been, you know, a lot of improvements in our game. And again, that's not to say that the CBA is perfect, but again, I think by and large it's been working. Yeah, I, I I feel the same way you do. I, when I look at a football game and somebody's penalized for targeting, although I do think throwing a guy out of a game on on the first targeting or when it's a bang bang play and it's not you know a malicious thought, I think that's a little harsh. But you know, having watched my son play football, I have no problem protecting a defensive receiver or a defensive player in a position. Mike, what keeps you up at night? What what makes Mike Tannenbaum wake up in the middle of the night, sit up in the bed and say, oh, God, I got to do that? Or what about this decision? Yeah, as you know, Bob, it's it's the things that, you know, come up unexpectedly. You know, unfortunately, last year we had an injury to our starting quarterback on a non-contact play at practice. You know, that was tough. You know, in a sport where things are going to happen, that was a tough one. Um, so those are the things that keep you up at night or, you know, the unforeseen things you can't predict that are going to happen. You take every reasonable precaution and, you know, in a salary cap era, you know, you, you try to have the best plan B you can have, but knowing that it's never going to be perfect. And, you know, over the course of the season, Bob, you know, as we are just about to embark on the 2018 regular season, you know, a whole bunch of things are going to happen to a whole bunch of teams. Um, you know, it looks like the defending Super Bowl champs are going to start their backup, which is probably not ideal for them. But, you know, they've done a great job of having the right depth at quarterback. And I think that's what makes our sport also so fun. And not only did it keep you up at night, but, it just adds to the intrigue of like what's going to happen next, and that's I think what adds to an incredibly interesting narrative throughout the season. Right. I mean, I would imagine last year you could not have anticipated that you were going to have a hurricane that was going to cancel your first game or postpone your first game, and then you'd play 16 on a road. That's those are things that you can't really plan for, but they happen, and you just have to find a way to deal with them. What kind of tone did you try to set for your organization when those kind of unexpected things happen? Yeah, you, you really have to, uh, again, lead by example. And, and we had a great operations guy that handled a lot of the logistics, Bob, and we just try to be over-communicative and made sure, obviously, the health and well-being and safety of our organization was paramount. You know, And once we were able to get everybody you know, stabilized and you know, where they could be, um, you know, then we got to turn our attention to football and you know, to have the game canceled and to go out to California. It was a very unusual dynamic, but... Um, Every team is going to deal with certain things, but you know, dealing with uh, Hurricane Irma was pretty unique. 
Yeah. So, Mike, a lot of people in your position, a lot of coaches uh, always say, I don't read the media. I don't read what's in the newspapers. I'm not going to ask you whether you read the newspapers or not, but you, you're living life in a bubble. Every decision that you make is, uh, especially in a big city like Miami, is being analyzed by two or three papers, sports talk radio. How do you deal with life in the bubble and making decisions? And do you think about what the, re- the reaction is going to be to your fans when you're doing these kind of things? Yeah, you know, and I certainly probably feel it more from, like, my kids having a son and daughter. You know, they're going to hear about it. And, and, again, I think the key thing is to go back to the process. Did we do our homework? Did we talk it out? Did we think about, you know, all the different permutations of it, knowing that, you know, some of these decisions aren't going to be popular. And, look, no one's going to bat a 1,000. But, you know, we got to fall back on what we feel is, like, a very, like, strong, pragmatic approach to here's what we're doing and here's why we're doing it. And as long as we do that and don't cut corners, you know, then you have to be convicted in your decisions, knowing that the ones going to get them all right, we're going to make some mistakes, and two, you know, they're not going to always be popular. But, um, you know, we're not trying to win the popularity contest. And, you know, sometimes to get our message out, you know, on certain decisions when you're moving on from popular players, it's not easy, but it's part of our responsibility. And you guys made some changes this year that were you lost some popular players or lost some high-paid players. Were those tough decisions for you to make, or does it make it easier in the salary cap era? No, absolutely. They, they were not always uh, easy decisions, Bob. But, again, that comes with the territory, and we did what we thought was best for us. And we lost good players. We lost talented players. We lost players that had been here for a while. But, you know, we also felt really good about, you know, the players we replaced them with. And, um over the next 16 weeks, you know, that'll all play out. And sometimes when you move on from one player, you're going to use that resources to extend a younger player that you don't want to lose. And, you know, there's a lot of different uh, factors that may go into, you know, moving on from a player. And sometimes you can get that message out. Other times it's going to take several months for your plan to unfold. Yeah. Now, Mike, I, probably one of your most important jobs are managing those people below you, which are your head coach and your general manager. Is there a philosophy that you have in managing those people to make sure that the personnel guy and the guy who's trying to win now are, are, are communicating, getting along on the same page? We just saw in, in Oakland when they traded Khalil Mack, there seemed to be a little bit of a split in the front of uh, the personnel guy or the GM and the head coach who's you know, winning now. Yeah, um, the three of us get along great. They they do a great job. They're hard workers. They're good people. So we spend a lot of time together. And, again, I think it's just talking it out, Bob, and, and understanding, like, hey, this is what we said we want to be as an organization. These are the types of players we wanted. So as long as that's the target, let's stick to a good process. We know our process will, you know, yield more good results than bad. So talking that out, you know, we, we just spend a lot of time doing that. And um, we really feel – good about the people in the building, feel the direction we're going as an organization, and we're really excited to get the season started. Yeah. The Amy Trask and I had a conversation about this. Amy, long-time member of the Raiders uh, front office, and we both said that the three keys that we believed were the three Cs, communicate, collaborate, and cooperate. And that's the way a, a successful organization can get along. So talk about the 2018 season in a second. You guys are unfortunately – in the same division as the latest, greatest dynasty, uh, the New England Patriots. How is that? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a challenge. I've been competing with those guys for a number of years. They do a great job. Coach Belichick, Tom Brady, obviously, you know, an all-time great. The standard and the bar is high, but, you know, if you get into this business, um, you're a competitor, and you want to compete against the best. So, you know, it's a challenge, but we're looking forward to it. And, um, you know, we play them in, in four weeks up there, and we'll be ready to go, you know, for that 
you know, last year we played them one and one You know, they beat us up there. We beat them down here. But they, they've obviously done a great job for a long time, Bob, and we have a lot of respect for them. What will be a successful season for the Miami Dolphins? I never put like a number on it except to say we, we set a really high standard for ourselves here. We got to the playoffs two years ago, and we want to have a, a good year, a successful year. Uh, we'll just take it one game at a time. So, Mike, I didn't ask you about concussions. I didn't ask you about kneeling. you got to give me a number, 12 and 4, 10 and 6. <laughs> you know, I'll just say this. You know, we just want to win a whole bunch of games so you, know, you and your son could go out in St. Louis and wear your Dolphin gear real proudly. How about that? Okay, I'll take that. And let me tell you, I do wear my Dolphin gear. He he keeps bringing me his shirts, which I don't fit in, but <laughs> I appreciate it. So, Mike, thank you very much for taking the time. As I said at the introduction, you're one of the smart guys in the league. Uh, you've, you've done a great job. You've never been afraid to, to do something innovative or take a chance on something or, or make a statement. Don't really care what other people say, and I appreciate that. And I, I thank you for coming on after the buzzer and wish you good luck this year. Thanks a lot, Bob. Really appreciate it. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.